My name is Sid Finkelstein, and welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast about how people craft the lives that they live in. Have you ever had a bad day at the office? Bought something that didn't turn out quite right and couldn't even get your money back? Or maybe you, you made a deal that didn't work out. I guess we all have to some extent, but I don't know too many people who have gone down the path of our guest today, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick is actually fifth-generation Fairfax, and Fairfax as a company is one of the leading media companies in Australia and has been for more than a century, competing with the likes of Rupert Murdoch and others. And when I say leading company, I'm talking about a family that was worth billions of dollars. And then the deal was made. Warwick was still in his 20s when he made a fateful decision that really through a series of events led to the, led to the demise of the Fairfax name as a business. Almost overnight, the family lost not only hundreds of millions of dollars, but the company itself. How do you, how do you live with this? That's the subject of the sitcast today. We'll hear Warwick's incredible and honest and compelling description of the events that led up to this disaster, and especially how he's lived his life since then. Remarkably, Warwick has made it through to the other side and now spends his time helping others deal with failure, deal with challenge, help, them se- help their own leadership styles as well. Despite what happened to the Fairfax Company, the name Warwick's story is really inspirational and a powerful one, chock full of lessons for all of us, whether we're born into a millionaire or rather billionaire family or not. Welcome back to the Sidcast. My name is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Warwick Fairfax. Hello, Warwick. Hey, Sid. Thanks for uh, coming in and being part of uh, part of the Sidcast. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you since I uh, I heard uh, some of your story, and it's a it's an amazing story. And I thought we should start at the beginning. Um, uh, growing up as um, as a member of a um, very famous, uh, very wealthy, very successful family in Australia. Uh, what are some of your early, earliest recollections as as a kid growing up? Well, it's interesting. With most kids, when they grow up, they they you know joke about, "Gee, do I want to be a fireman or a policeman or you know what have you?" For me, it was uh, that was uh, not a relevant question. It was always that I was going to go into the family business. So from the earliest memory, you had the sense that you had to be careful in everything that you did, because if you did something stupid, uh, it was going to make the newspapers, you know. Yeah. So you were in the public eye, you right. had a responsibility, so uh, that sense of responsibility was sort of ingrained in me um, at, at birth, sort of being in a, a goldfish bowl, being different than everybody else, because, uh, you know, America is a bit different. There are a number of wealthy families, but in Australia... It, it felt kind of like there was just us. Australia's mm. reasonably egalitarian, which is you know good, obviously, uh, but it didn't feel. And we were definitely old money, uh, so I went to a good private school, but I definitely felt different than the other boys. You know, being a boys' school, so yeah, sort of being different than others, having this weight of responsibility. That was sort of mm-hmm. yeah. always ingrained. Did your father or mother say th- things to you? I mean, how, how does that, because you said almost from birth, of course, we don't know what was going on at birth, but <laughs> somehow it was ingrained in you. And I'm curious, how, how does that happen? You know, it was less overt. My mother was, you know, more direct about it than my father. But there was a sense of this legacy five generations ago started by uh, a person that came from out from England, a person of faith who 
wanted to forge a, a newspaper um, that would be independent, beholden to no party. And so over succeeding generations, there was a sense that it was a sacred trust, almost a, a, mm. a responsibility to the community mm. that we were there to uphold. So uh, it's almost like the duty on a country uh, motif. It, it just felt like, well, how could I not want to preserve this legacy that was so important and seen as important to uh, Australia to have a, a free and independent press. So it's, uh, it wasn't so much spoken, but it was, it was clearly understood and it was clear that if I didn't go into it that it would have devastated my parents and my father that I you know, uh, dearly loved. Uh, so, yeah, it was, the legacy was so clear and so strong how could you not want to do that? Yeah. How could you not want to? Right. Yeah, right. Did you have uh, siblings? I do. Uh, my dad was married uh, three times and my uh, mother twice. I was from the last mar- marriage of each, so I have older half-brothers and sisters, and so it's sort of a complex family. So when people ask me how many brothers and sisters do I have, it's not a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you, you were the one who was going to take over the company at some point, even though you had an older older brother? Yeah. So I had an older brother by um, my dad's first marriage, and you know he died a couple of years ago, so he was close to 30 years older than me and um, didn't have a family. So there was a sense that after him that, um, at least from my father's perspective, from my parents' perspective, that the mantle uh, would fall to me. I had some cousins, but certainly his strong desire was that I would uh, one day play a leading role and head up the family company. Right. So I have to ask you, you have half-brothers and half-sisters, and you're from the third marriage of your father. Exactly. How did they deal with that? Um, as far as uh, what was your relationship with them? Did they? Well, it, it's complicated um, between uh, my dad and uh, cousin and um, uh, his son by um, the first marriage. It was like in a lot of family businesses, there were divisions going back uh, decades. And yeah, I don't know that it matters whose fault it was, but there was certainly some estrangement there to to a degree. Uh, so um, see that happens in every family to to a degree, but you have this added complication of family and business are one and the same. But when there's power and money, it uh, it, it tend, that tends to happen. Newspaper families, it's you know I don't know that there are too many that don't have that issue. I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm thinking of of course Rupert Murdoch and all right. the machinations we've read about over over the years. Right, who's going to succeed him? Did you know him by the way, Rupert Murdoch? I've met him a him? number of times. Uh, he was a great. Uh, adversary. Uh, he would have loved to get our newspaper because we were more sort of the quality um, end of the spectrum. Uh, we had the equivalent of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, so the quality papers uh, that at the time when I was growing up uh, were doing extremely well. These days, newspapers aren't doing as well. Yes. Was Murdoch big in those days when, when you know, Fairfax Certainly, was so big? Yeah, in the 70s. 60s and 70s, um, when I was growing up, he got, you know, uh, successively bigger, started getting into uh, England, buying The Sun, and then, you know, TV stations in the U.S. So it was, it was certainly fairly big, yeah. Did your then. father look at him as, as a direct rival, given he's another mogul in the same industry? Oh, absolutely, because he owned some rival papers in Sydney that directly challenged uh, our papers, so... Uh, 
Yeah, there was no question. Yeah. He was uh, the chief competition. Right, <laughs> right. And he's still he's still out there. Oh, he is. He's a brilliant guy. So uh, back to um, back to growing up again. So uh, you lived in in Sydney, Australia, yes. and I imagine it was a, quite a substantial home given your family. Um, did you have some? I wonder about this when you think about you know very famous people or even you know royal family right. or or you know people in in, in um, um, presidential families and past presidential families and senators and others in the U.S. There must have been quite a bit of security around you. You know, there there wasn't. Maybe Australia is just different. Um, no, we we never had any of uh, that. Despite you know, my mother was um, very different than my father. Very outgoing, and uh, you know, we had parties for large numbers of people in which we'd have prime ministers, ambassadors, uh, Hollywood folks when they would visit Australia would come by, mm-hmm. you know, the um, Liberace, Kirk Douglas, just a number of famous people. You met people. those people? Uh-huh. Wow. You know, it was just, uh, and, you know, my dad was knighted, so he had the same name as I do, so he was, you know, it was Sawarik and Lady Fairfax, and so... Friends in Los Angeles would say, you have to go see Lady Fairfax. She'll throw you an incredible party, which even for Hollywood folks, you know, it was, it, it was pretty incredible. amazing. Yeah. Well, she just had a knack of making mm-hmm. people feel welcome. and um, So, yeah, it's uh, – but despite all that, no, security, it's just not something that we did or people did back then, maybe a simpler time. Yeah, right. Um, do you remember any particular – uh, advice uh, your mom gave you? Because it sounds like she was a very strong player in your life growing up. Yeah, she was. I mean, she was really this force of nature. Um, uh, she had uh, seven fashion shops by the time she was 23 and um, definitely a self-made woman had this idea that she would make, uh, as she put it back, she had, this was in the 50s, she would make fashionable clothes but at prices that um, just, you know, ordinary um, factory girls, as she put it, mm. uh, could afford. So she was quite something. She's had a huge perseverance, certainly the notion of uh, of never giving up um, was uh, in, ingrained. And she was certainly somebody that uh, whatever she put her mind to tended to, uh, tended to happen. So they, they were both strong-willed but very, very different people. Yeah. When when you're when you're growing up, did your father take you to work? No, that's an interesting question. No, he he didn't. I was sort of afraid of going to the newspapers because I would have been seen as next generation, maybe heir apparent, and I'm somebody by nature is reticent. Uh, I'd say somewhat shy, so I hate being in the limelight. Um, so no, he he never really did, which was interesting. Nor did he say. Uh, you know, have a summer job in the paper. Yeah. In hindsight, that wouldn't have been bad, but it was such this goldfish bowl that uh, I, I don't. I guess, at, and at heart, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to go into it. Um, although I don't know that I was I wasn't fully conscious of that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to think about what training you need to become essentially, you know, CEO and running running the kind of primary. Um, control of the ownership stake. Uh, and it sounds like the only training he was thinking of is, well, your birth uh, and this being around him and, mm-hmm. and, and your mom as well, um, as opposed to kind of, um, you know, showing, showing the kid the ropes. Uh, um, 
having them uh, having them be part of the scene, start to learn. I, it sounds like he was. I mean, do you think he was looking to protect you a little bit, or as long as he could? No, uh, you know the the. The ancestor that started the family business, John Fairfax, was a business guy, but my father was more of a philosopher at heart. He would have been a great university professor of philosophy. He read widely. He wrote a couple books on um, run a, trying to form a synthesis of uh, just different religions, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Buddhism, you know, Hinduism, just different traditions. So he the area of philosophy was just his passion. So business training is just not a language that he would have really thought of. He mm-hmm. was very intellectual uh, in that sense. So for him, he wanted me to go to Oxford like uh, he had and his father had. And so that was, to him, training was more uh, training of the mind uh, yeah. he, than practical hands-on training. Was he actually the person running the company at any point in time? Uh, or he had people he hired to kind yeah, of run it. And he, he did. I mean, he had a longtime managing director who, who ran it. So he, he didn't, but it, certainly in his younger days, he was a very uh, good writer and wrote you know, articles, editorials. He did less of that as the years wore on. But certainly the editorial side was uh, definitely his passion, but not so much the business side. Yeah, yeah. Um, what? Uh, uh, how did you feel about, um, and did you feel pressure about this expectation of the things you had to do? Because just in our conversation already, um, you know, it's pretty clear you were expected to run this company or be the primary shareholder and overseer. You were expected to go to Oxford, um, and you went to Harvard Business School. I don't know if that was part of the picture or not, but uh, there seems to. It sounds like there's a lot of pressure. Oh, there was. It was immense. Um... You know, because I had to mold myself into the kind of person that could one day run this company when you're up against competition like Rupert Murdoch, who's, uh, you know, he may have a ruthless streak, arguably, but he is a brilliant businessman and uh, has been incredibly successful, so you have to respect that. Uh, So um, from an earliest age, I wanted to make my parents proud, not let them down. So I always worked hard at school, got good grades, uh, went to Oxford, worked on Wall Street for a few years, not because I was interested in finance, but I felt like we've had a number of journalists in the family. Maybe it would be good to have some folks that understand business. Mm -hmm. Same with Harvard Business School. Um, I think that was a collective discussion. My mother certainly thought that would be a good idea. I thought that was a good idea. So... That was a good example. Certainly, uh, Wall Street and Harvard Business School. I went there not so much because I had a passion for that. Mm-hmm. I felt those were the skills that were needed. So my mindset was, what's needed to fulfill the job? Let me get the appropriate training. Yeah, that's tremendous dedication, isn't it? Well, um, loyalty is a big thing for me, and I love my both my parents very much. And uh, absolutely, yeah, it was sort of whatever it took to. Uh, it reminds get me the a little done. bit. I mean, it's a different scale, but. You know, in, in a number of countries, you go into the business of your father, um, mm-hmm. even if it's, you know, uh, someplace in Italy wearing your leather goods or, Absolutely. or you know, you follow in, um, in, in being an artisan of some, of some type. In, in America, and I suspect Australia and many other advanced, uh, advanced not the right word because Italy is very advanced. I don't want any hate mail about that. <laughs> uh, but in, uh, in, in, in many other countries, uh, there is some of that. Yeah, there is some of that. 
but it's kind of like create your own, make create your own life, accomplish what you can accomplish. Uh, and you're 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 a dad, and uh, your kid your kids grew up mostly in the U.S. Yes, they did. So, what message did they did you share with them directly or indirectly? Do you think uh, the complete opposite of to the what message. you had? Absolutely. And my mother was more vocal about it. My father was more understated, but. Um, the idea of create your own life, uh, irrelevant question to me. It was all about duty and doing what was needed with my kids. I want them to be happy and use their skills in a way that uh, gives back and uh, lead fulfilling and worthwhile lives. So uh, I try to go the opposite direction uh, because I've done a fair amount of executive coaching I try to discern what are their skills, I dialogue, I ask them questions, maybe offer them thoughts, but it's all from a perspective of trying to help them be who they are, uh, not who I want them to be. So, I mean, I've gone completely the other direction. They know my background. They've visited Australia often. So, yeah, I've taken a 180-degree different approach with my kids. Yeah. Really, really fascinating to think about. Everyone deals with this, and some, you know, how much do you pass on that your father and mother yeah. gave you? And of course, most people, not everyone, most people truly respect that. And sometimes you do the opposite, right. <laughs> and you learn, you learn, and other times you 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 can't help it but do some of the same some of the same things. Um, I want to get to uh, the time uh, back to kind of grown up and at Harvard and uh, what that was like and uh, to some of the uh, most central decisions of, uh, of your life that uh, set the course for, for where you're at today. So we'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Warwick Fairfax. Leadership and failure is a topic I've been working on for years and years and I wrote a book called Why Smart Executives Fail that uh, details some of the biggest disasters of the era. That was the time of Enron and Tyco and WorldCom and a bunch of others. And when, um, when you do that work, what you discover is that so much of it boils down to, um, to individuals, to people, to people as humans. And the, the same flaws that all of us have in everyday life when they play out in the business arena, uh, well, they do play out in the business arena and they have a big, big uh, impact. Warwick's story today is really something to, uh, to think about and, and very powerful. Uh, if you want to uh, take a deeper look in, um, at some of my own research on the topic, Why Smart Executives Fail, um, published in 2003. Okay, welcome back to the SITCAST with uh, Warwick Fairfax. And uh, where we left off is, um, well, the big decisions that he made back in, I guess this was the mid to late, uh, late 80, 80s, 87, I think, in yes, particular. So you were at Harvard Business School. And um, I guess you you were you had some exams going on, and your <laughs> classmates, your second year of the program. And, but you had some other things uh, going on. What, what was going on? Yeah, at night I was talking to my advisors, investment bankers, and planning a takeover uh, of the company that turned out to be a $2.25 billion takeover, at least in Australian dollars, which is somewhere north of $1.5 billion U.S., I guess, back then mm-hmm. in the late 80s. So uh, how this all happened was my dad died um, in early 87. He was in his 80s when he died. And so at that point... Uh, there was um, some tumult uh, in the family. What was going to happen now? Uh, 50% of the company was um, publicly traded, so the stock price of the company started rocketing up, which said the market felt the company was in play, rightly or wrongly. That's 
was the market. So who owned the company, actually, when you say well, 50%? Well, 50% was owned by the family in three major blocks, of which my dad's block was, was one, and then the rest uh, of the other 50% was publicly held. Mm-hmm. So my determination is the market felt that if there was the right uh, takeover bid, and this is the late 80s, so you had a number of corporate raiders in Australia that just, as in, that's the word here, mm-hmm. that if you made a high enough bid, maybe you could um, get a few of the smaller family shareholdings, and once you got over 50, everybody else would sell. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was the theory and that I assume the market believed. So at that point, I didn't want the company to go out of family hands. I, as my parents did, felt the company wasn't being uh, uh, run well. Um, part of the, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, friction in the family for decades, but uh, one of the key inflection points was in 70, 1976. Some other relatives uh, who were major shareholders removed my father as, as chairman at the company, which at age 15 was pretty devastating to me. I just couldn't understand how Mm. you could do that. Mm. And I'm sure they had their reasons, and I have a bit more objectivity than I did back then. But uh, he was still on the board from 76 until he died in 87, but uh, he felt that management was being too conservative and weren't taking advantage of opportunities. And uh, so the reasons for the takeover were partly to... uh, ensure that other corporate raiders um, didn't take the company over and to change management. And there was also a sense that perhaps the editorial side had become a bit uh, uh, sensational. Uh, So being young and naive and age 26 at the time, as I was studying at Harvard Business School and exams, I felt like something needed to be done and uh, the whole duty was so big that I um, got together with some uh, advisors and in late August 87 launched this $2 billion, uh, plus takeover. So this is uh, late August 1987. As a, as a reminder, um, October of that year was the um, gigantic crash. I think since then there have been some yes. other big things that have happened, yeah. but 1987 was really a um, um, one of the biggest uh, um, one day and one week movements in the stock market for a long time. But this is before that. Well, but, but it's interesting you say that because that really affected us because from, from day one, we had too much debt. I and my uh, naivety believed that other family members wouldn't sell out. I wanted to change management, but I didn't necessarily want to run the company. But who would want to be locked into a private company with a 26-year-old as majority shareholder? I mean, no person in their right mind would accept that proposition. So, uh, But you thought you could do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I, we can, I guess, probably get to mistakes and false assumptions, but that was, that was a huge one. Um, so what happened is from day one, we had too much debt, and then the October 87 stock market crash hurt our asset sale program at the time, Media assets, uh, certainly newspapers, could only be sold in the Australian market. and It wasn't open to overseas uh, ownership. So as we were trying to get the debt down, uh, that was uh, had a huge impact on us. So, so I'm just yeah. trying to picture this. So uh, this was your idea to take the company, to kind of get 
take it private in a sense. Well, yeah. I mean, I was the one who led it. Were there people telling me, suggesting to me that uh, you might want to consider this, you know, advisors, mm-hmm. what have you? Yes, but ultimately, obviously, I did it. I'm responsible. So, it was your, it was yeah. your call. But that's an interesting yeah. thing because often people are telling us, and this is like, you know, yeah. multi-billion dollar deal. Mm-hmm. So, but in, in, in principle, it's the same thing as many other things, even though there are more zeros in this conversation, <laughs> uh, which is people tell you all sorts of things. Right. And um, they have their interests and their, their... Exactly. And sometimes they align and sometimes they don't. Uh, I found personally, sometimes people tell you, be great at this, at whatever that happens to be. And boy, you, you like to hear that. That absolutely. feels to the ego, right? Oh, ab- absolutely. Because I'd always... Studied hard, got good grades in, in school. Uh, even my father said, well, you could be one of the great Fairfaxes because people in family businesses are not always diligent. They sometimes enjoy living off the fat of the land and mm-hmm. the nice cars and the nice houses and work ethic and money typically don't go together, not inherited money. Mm-hmm. Self-made is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... That kind of made things worse in a way, the fact that I was very diligent and studious. Yeah. So you had inherited money, but you were actually caring a lot about this. And oh, yeah. Maybe in some of the cousins less so, I guess you're implying. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to cast aspersions on other people, like, you know, just certainly myself. But just in general, mm-hmm. it's not always a common a common thing. So, yes, maybe a bit too, uh, too diligent in, in that sense, I suppose. Well, being too diligent, seldom a character flaw. <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, I mean, diligence is, is good. Just just be careful what cause you're being diligent about. Not all yeah. causes are helpful. I mean, we're talking about judgment in a sense. Yes, uh, and I know there's indeed. many factors that yeah. determine whatever whatever goes on, including in this, in this instance. But, you know, at the end of the day, if somebody tells you you're great at something, you'd be good, you should do it. If you don't want to do it, and it's hard to know. You've got to know yourself, and I think that's part of, kind of the journey you've been on. Well, and I, I didn't really know myself back then. Um, yes, I worked hard and was diligent, but was I a Rupert Murdoch type uh, who was, had the inherent wiring to lead a huge company? Well, the answer is really obviously no. Uh, I know that now, mm-hmm. but back then I didn't. That was How I was wired was irrelevant. It was more what needed to be done, and I was going to mold myself into the person that was needed, which is not really possible. You can't mold yourself into anything you want to be. You know, that's a misnomer. That in itself is good good advice. (laughs) And again, I I want to generalize you have an unusual situation, but a lot of people listening that, yeah, maybe parents are are implying or telling them, you should be be a lawyer, you should be a doctor, you should be this, you should be that. And if it's not who you are, you pro- some people are going to be smart enough and with connections you can get where you need to get to, but you, you won't be happy. No, I mean, another example is by nature, I work very hard, but I wouldn't say I'm competitive or, or driven. And certainly for guys growing up, you're meant to just want to win at all costs and destroy the other person on the soccer field. And uh, that's just not me. That I mean, wasn't you. I mean, I have two sons and a daughter, and my sons love tennis. When we play tennis, we just play for fun. We never play for points. It's Mm -hmm. just not in our family DNA, and that's okay. It's okay to play for points. It's okay not to, but there are certain things we come out of the box hardwired as, and, uh, yeah, there were certain aspects that were needed that I just didn't really have. Yeah, imagine being in that situation, not having that kind of killer instinct is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, which I, I which like. Which it wasn't you. Which I don't. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so um, the mechanics of the deal then were uh, that you, um, well, help, help us understand kind of at a basic level, because sure, I'm sure yeah, there's yeah. a lot of moving parts <laughs> here. You know, what was the deal, uh, what was the deal going to be? So uh, the deal would, was going to be funded by um, uh, just debt, um, you know, commercial bank, uh, was the lead um, of that deal. And this is the 80s when big deals got done. Uh, we were going to reduce the debt by um, asset sale. So it was, you know, 100% cash, uh, you know, buying uh, all the shares. And um, as I said, the deal went wrong right from day one. So after, I'd say, about a year, we had to uh, refinance and we went to um, kind of lender of last resort at the time, Drexel Burnham. In '89, I think it was Michael. Oh, Milken. that was the junk bond days. Exactly, because yes. that was kind of uh, all we had, and um, it kind of made things worse in some ways because they had all these strange things on there. We had uh, equity appreciation rights called ears. We had foreign exchange appreciation rights called fears. So we had ears <laughs> and fears. Ears and fears. What were those things? <laughs> well, they were all designed for U.S. junk bond holders to eliminate foreign exchange risk and. Um, mm-hmm. Other risk, but what that what happened then is try to get Australian investors to invest when you've got a bunch of subordinated debt with all of these strange things on them. It's like your average, you know, uh, corporate investor in Australia was like, "I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to touch this mm-hmm. because there's all these weird things there." So, and, and you still had to have Australian investors. Well, uh, my point was after we did the subordinated debt, the junk bonds. Um, it was just a tough situation, too much debt, and in late 1990, Australia got in a large recession, and newspaper revenues are very cyclical. Certainly classifieds go up and down with the economy. So at that point, we had zero margin for error, and even though I brought a new management that increased operating profits by 80%, it didn't matter what happened at an operating level. The debt was too high. It was unsustainable. So, uh, I mean, it would have needed... No recession and, uh, you know, uh, perfect economy for years. So it was really from day one, um, it was going to be extremely difficult, if uh, close to impossible, to make this work. A certain amount of debt is unsustainable no matter what you do. Yeah, and what happened to all the money that was being made over the years? Was that given back to shareholders? Well, um, there, there could have been this giant treasure chest sitting there somewhere. Yeah, I mean... Uh, some would say if it wasn't for my takeover, the company uh, would have gone from strength to strength. They talked about the classified advertising as the rivers of gold is an expression mm-hmm. that they would use mm-hmm. about the two main papers, Sydney Morning Herald and then The Age in Melbourne. Uh, back then, no online advertising, no internet uh, yeah, back 19, in the 80s. 19, late 80s, yeah. So uh, it was hugely profitable, um, Less so now because of just the onslaught of um, digital advertising. But, uh, yeah, some people would say if it wasn't for my takeover, company would have gone from strength to strength. So what, what, so what would have happened? So somebody else, you, you feared some other company would take right. it over and do whatever yes. they'd want to do. Right. Um, and if they financed it very, very differently, they wouldn't have had the same problem. If they financed it the same way, they would have had the same problem. Well, if certainly, uh, right. Because um, that was the thing that ended up killing yeah, it. Right, because it was largely that, that um, I was told that you, when you make a cash offer, 
that you had to offer it to all shareholders. Now, that may or may not have been true, but that was the advice legally mm-hmm. that I had, mm-hmm. that um, all shareholders had a right to tender their shares, which means I had to, if, if the family members wanted to sell out, I had to buy them out. So that's, that's really what killed the deal from, from day one is um, uh, you know, an all-debt deal, which I wanted to get control. So if I just got outside investors, that would have um, uh, made that problematic. But uh, anyway, it was, you know, that's sort of, uh, I probably used the wrong advisors. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, there were a lot of mistakes, mistaken assumptions. Yes. That led to where it went. So family members sold as part of this deal. Many yes. many of them. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean all of the all the rest of the family sold. Yes. All the rest of the family. And did yeah. they did you have conversations with them? Did you ask them this is the chance to keep it in the family and yes, stick with us? But no sane person would have stuck with me because I wanted control so I could change management because I believed that they wouldn't want to change management. But uh, I I didn't take um, really an opportunity to talk to them in an unpressured manner pre-takeover about my reservations about management. Um, I've made the assumption that they wouldn't listen, and so therefore I didn't bother to ask and just did the takeover. I mean, you know, colossal assumption to make and hindsight They didn't know mistake. you were going to be doing this? No. No, I just sprung it on them at the last moment, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was a bit like a, t- a corporate takeover in that sense. Yeah, and so yeah, we can imagine some of their reactions, right? Well, they weren't happy. They were. I not mean, happy. They, they they were. What are you doing, they, Warwick? They, and they yeah. were just. It's unnecessary, uh, which I can totally understand that perspective. I mean, they were probably right in many ways. Maybe I had issues with management, but um, I'm not sure that the. Uh, uh, remedy that I was advocating uh, was really warranted given what was happening. But when they said, overkill. you know, what are you doing, Warwick? What did you, because yeah. you believed it was the right thing at that time. Yeah, I was, so you I was young, naive, and, and stubborn, and um, I, I didn't listen. I didn't really give them an opportunity. I mean, it was sort of the night before that they learned about it. Uh, the before, night before the deal they found uh-huh. out. Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, it was... Uh, it's sort of hard to imagine my uh, stupidity, naivety. Yes, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say, you know, um, ha- uh, a newly admitted Harvard Business School graduate. I mean, it's. I made a lot of foolish assumptions. Um, a lot of it was just fueled by emotion. It probably didn't help that some of these family members had tossed my dad out as chairman 11 years before. So maybe subconsciously that played into my mm-hmm. rationale saying, mm-hmm. well, Look what they did to my dad. Why yeah. should I be so nice to them? Right. Kind to of thing. To them, right? Right. I don't know that I consciously thought about that at the time, but in hindsight, you would have to think if you were a psychologist. Yes. Uh, it was probably a factor. How could it not be part exactly. of it? Exactly. Because as exactly. you said, you were, you were 15 at that time, and right. you were devastated by it. Absolutely. So how, that doesn't just go away. No, you're right. It didn't. Yeah. Did, they, did they mention that to you in their... No, again, I, I just really, I didn't give them a chance, yeah. you know, I mean, just the night beforehand. And, um, yeah, I mean, um, it's easy for me to say, well, they sold out at the, t- at the top of the market at, at higher prices. You may 
were ever going to get uh, for newspapers. Uh, once the 90s started hitting, even after I lost control, the company went on, digital media came on board. So certainly financially, it would be hard to argue that they didn't get a good price. But So that's fine, but uh, I don't think you know, that wasn't really, uh, in one sense, their choice. Um, they didn't, I really didn't, didn't give them a choice, not, not realistically, being the option being locked into a private company. But yes, financially, it all did very well, but uh, it was still a very hurtful thing, certainly for family relations. And uh, did you ever uh, repair those relationships with some of those? People? Yeah. Um, over the decades since, uh, with... Um, some of those relationships, we've had conversations, and uh, we see each other at family gatherings. And I'd say uh, it was really uh, more just a couple of folks that were heavily involved, maybe probably a few more than that. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I'd say relations are pretty good, um, pretty good now. Uh, I don't know that you ever totally forget uh, that kind of a thing, but uh, I'd say for the most part we all get on pretty well. You know, it sounds like this deal enabled them to get a much higher price than they ever would have gotten for their shares. Well, and that's... And that, 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 that could that ease some pain. <laughs> I mean, that's true. It, in hindsight, it's hard to argue, could we have got a higher price? The answer is, I, I don't think so. It's hard to imagine how. That was the high watermark for newspapers in the late 80s. And keeping those, uh, keeping those assets, I mean, subsequently... Um, there have, been, there have been other changes in the value of those assets have gone have gone down. And you mentioned digital, of course, that has been the ultra-revolution in uh, newspaper and, business. And I think some have said at some point uh, it may well have less family uh, control because there'd be pressure in certain family circles to uh, cash out, to you know, get out money that's locked into this uh, company. So it's hard to conceive that it would have remained a, uh, it wasn't a private company, it was a public company, but at 50%, there was no, not much margin to get much less than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and corporate raiders would be fully cognizant of that. So um, would it have gone on another 20, 30, 40 years uh, in family control? Maybe, but it's hard to conceive that that would have happened. But it might have left family control in a bit of a, a uh, more harmonious fashion than it did. Uh, well, that's, an, that's something we'll, ne we'll never know. That's exactly but right. Th that family would have had less less wealth, almost uh, certainly, because right. there's virtually no newspaper group that has got, become more valuable, except for you know when there've been dramatic changes where they go into other assets, cable assets. Murdoch is an example of some of the work he's done. I, uh, it's hard to see that we would have been quite so far-sighted. Family businesses. It's very difficult to um, to change from your core assets, and a lot of people written about that, as you know. It's hard. To, it's hard to change end of sentence, and then you start bringing in family and family dynamics. And exactly. so, this deal, would you say that? I mean, is there a way to characterize it? How much money was lost? I mean, is is there a way to know that? Well, certainly for me, um, yeah. I mean, I had a significant shareholding, um, uh, basically inherited from my dad and, you know, mother and I. So, yeah, that was, um, you know, notionally, I probably lost hundreds of millions of dollars, um, which in today's money, if you properly invested, it's probably somewhat significantly more <laughs> than that. But funnily enough, um, even though I grew up with certainly uh, money and position, 
money has never been that important to me. Uh, it still really isn't. I mean, I'm you know, happy to enjoy a nice vacation and all, but money in of itself is a pretty meaningless concept to me. I just saw more of the devastating things that it can do. So that wasn't so much devastating to me because it's not something mm. I valued. Maybe if I'd valued it more, I would have been a bit more careful. Yeah. <laughs> but, I understand what you're saying, but I'm <laughs> thinking now in the back of my head, well, someone listening can say, yeah, but you know, that's what he's saying, given yeah. what happened. But how could that be that you don't care about money? Well, again, it doesn't mean I want to, you know, uh, live in abject poverty or anything, but it's just, I guess I've learned that money in of itself doesn't make you fulfilled. I mean, how many wealthy people are truly happy? Because, you know, it's never enough. You know, you have mm -hmm. a nice jet, well, somebody else has a nicer jet. True. You have a house in the Hamptons, that's great, but somebody else has a house in the south of France. I mean, there's always another level, and there's always something to be envious of. It's just human nature. So it's, it, it's never enough. It never satisfies in of itself. Certainly that old aphorism, money doesn't make you happy, is true. So it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being successful, but success just in of itself for money, that's, it's not fulfilling. If you're, if you're driven for that next, that scoreboard, if that scoreboard mm -hmm. is important because when you mentioned the house in the Hamptons, so, the house in South of France, that's a scoreboard yeah. of sorts. Yeah. yeah you, th there's only one winner in quotes uh, in any <laughs> category, and that's a temporary win because there's always some. I, I've felt that, you know, in sports and uh, right. lots of uh, in school, it's yeah. always somebody's a little, it's, there's somebody who's a little taller, someone a little better, better looking, the, someone a little faster. That always is, you know, um, I went to a good private school in uh, Sydney, and I was always in the top few, worked hard, uh, did well. So then I go to Balliol College, Oxford, doing philosophy, politics, and economics, and that was one of the best colleges for that. So it almost was like, um, yeah, I did well in you know maybe college baseball, and you go up to the major leagues, and it's like, wow, I felt like a, a moron compared to mm. these other people. They, they were seriously intellectually smart. I mean, the, the best of the best. Mm -hmm. So there's always another level. Yeah. So, you know. There is always another level. I, I saw that when <laughs> I went for my PhD at Columbia, uh, from being first in math and everything to discovering I was getting the math problems wrong, and this uh, woman from India was smiling her way through, you know, <laughs> teaching me how to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, so you learn some humility along the way. Um, exactly. So uh, let, let's, take, uh, let's take another uh, quick break, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about some of the lessons learned and, uh, uh, and some of what you're doing these days. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Sid Finkelstein, the Sidcast, and we're here with Warwick Fairfax. So, Warwick, before the break, we were talking about some of uh, what well, we're talking about the deal uh, that kind of changed the history of the company and maybe the history of yourself as well. And uh, I think listeners are probably struck by your um, honesty um, in describing what happened. I talked to a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives, and I even wrote a book on failure. Uh, and um, not everybody is quite as forthcoming as, uh, as you are. How, how is that? Um, yeah. Well, um, part of the reason is, by nature, I'm a very reflective person. I'm wired that way. I call myself a reflective advisor. I actually enjoy asking questions. I'm curious. I love learning. So uh, to me, to be able to move on, I had to understand, you know, what happened? Why did I do what I did? What were the mistakes I made? And uh, probably the biggest barrier for me um, back in the 90s, which was a tough decade, is 
I kept like wanting to do this self-flagellation, like how could I have been so dumb? Mm. I mean, I was a Harvard MBA. My undergraduate was, was Oxford. I'm not an idiot. At least I didn't think I was. How could I have been so stupid? Mm. You know, and there are reasons, you know, uh, dad dying and feeling a sense of duty, uh, maybe some resentment about other family members throwing my dad out. Certainly there were a lot of emotional dynamics that potentially were clouding my judgment. Add that in with some stubbornness and um, just this overzealousness to the cause, perhaps. I mean, there's a whole mix of emotions that led to some of the colossal mistakes. But still, one of the hardest things when you go through failure is, yes, you know, um, there are times in which you need to forgive others or you want them to forgive you. But one of the hardest things is to forgive yourself. Mm. Certainly was for me. Um, so that, that was a very, very tough lesson. Mm. And I had to just realize we all make mistakes. Mine was just really big and really public. Uh, I guess in answer to your question, uh, what really helped me uh, in my road back was faith has been important in my family for generations. The, c the company was started by a person of strong faith, and um, faith became more important to me at Oxford. I went to an evangelical Anglican church. So for me, this faith's perspective that God loves all of us. He doesn't, you know, need what we do. He, you know, he loves us unconditionally. So this sense that there is somebody from my perspective who loves everybody on the planet unconditionally and, he, you know, doesn't need us uh, to do all this stuff for him. He just, you know, uh, loves us because... Uh, Intellectually, I understood that, but it was still took years to get to the point where I could forgive myself and move on. But certainly, that was helpful. It was a helpful. Yeah. It's helpful to have some core of beliefs, whether it's. It doesn't have to be you know, evangelical Christianity. It could be a major religion, a philosophical way of thinking, but some set of values that underpin who you are. That especially in difficult times, you can call on as a sort of a core of who you are and what you believe, or whatever that may be. So that was that was a key part for me uh, uh, getting back. But yeah, it was it, it was tough. I mean, I'd wanted to preserve the family company, and yet what I did directly led to its downfall. There've been books written since on the fall of Fairfax in the last three or four years, more talking about alleged mismanagement from the '90s on, and uh, yeah, a lot of media companies have not done too well. But there's still a, there's a, a theme in there that said if the Fairfax family had uh, maintained control, maybe it wouldn't have gone downhill. So it's like, oh, great. There's something else I never knew I could be blamed for. It's come along <laughs> now. <laughs> Hooray. You know, it's a little bit of a stretch for me to think that we would have been so more, much more far-sighted than other people. But that's yeah, I could, uh, <laughs> I, I could, I, I could uh, allay that concern. Uh, yes, there is a possibility, but uh, I've studied this for a long time, <laughs> and including the digital uh, revolution. Yeah, that's a that's a long shot. I agree. That's a long shot. So uh, you said, it I mean, it took a long time, and intellectually, you un you, you got around mm -hmm. to understanding, but emotionally, it would take it would take Absolutely. longer. Absolutely. Yeah, and you say you did a lot of work on on that. So. Could you share a little bit of what that work was, was like? I mean, how do you, you do that? Well, part of it's through, um, you know, just reading, in my case, uh, scripture, prayer, having a faith community, but part of it's to understanding who I was. And I realized that 
yeah, I was doing the Judy on a country thing, but um, I was really living somebody else's vision. I don't know that I was even living my dad's vision. I was living John Fairfax's vision, the founder five generations before. You know, my dad, he wasn't a media tycoon. He was a philosophy professor. Mm. He was a writer. He was a thinker. He loved to engage in intellectual, philosophical discussion with people of all different beliefs, political backgrounds. He didn't care. He just loved mm. discussion and intellectual uh, probing just for the sake of it. So it was just he was in the wrong position. So I don't know that he was truly happy, so to speak. I mean, he enjoyed the writing part of it, but he wasn't a business guy. So we had generations fulfilling a role, but it wasn't necessarily maybe their vision or their dream. It was the founders. So that was a big lesson is uh, you can't inherit a vision. It doesn't matter how worthwhile or how noble or how much you feel like it will save humanity or what have you, that's great, but it may not necessarily be your calling. It's yeah. got to be your vision. You can't inherit it. So that was probably the biggest single lesson right. for me. Right. And when you say, you know, the, the founder, John John Fairfax, right? Yeah. Um, well, you don't know what his vision was other than what he wrote in that time. You don't know what his vision was in 1987, but it was, it would have been your perception or your, your vision yeah. of his vision in a sense, uh, which is really really hard to do. Well, and one of the hardest things is it was a good vision. He had this great phrase, or at least the masthead of the paper when he bought it in, uh, or got control in 1841, it had this phrase, may Whigs call me Tory and Tory call me Whig, which basically in modern language means may liberal call me conservative and conservative call me liberal. Mm. It was meant to be an independent paper beholden to nobody back in an era when every paper was clearly a party newspaper back in the 1800s. They didn't even pretend. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great vision. Mm -hmm. That's a noble, a worthwhile thing. And that was sort of almost, not intoxicating, but it, it pulled you in because how could you, how could you disagree with that vision? Mm -hmm. It was a noble cause. So, and that's, it was noble, that's great, but it, I just didn't have the wiring to do that or really the inherent desire. So that yeah. was the conundrum. And, and you had to come to realize that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just because it's a noble vision that you may think is worthwhile doesn't mean it's for you. This is such a central um, lesson for, mm -hmm. for anyone, really, um, whether it's vision or what somebody carves out a life for you and how mm -hmm. you think. But it's not just somebody tells you what to do and you try to do it. In your case, you're, it's a bit more subtle. It's your perception of what somebody else would have wanted you to do. Well, I exactly. Who knows what John Fairfax would have um, would have wanted, but I've certainly learned a lot of lessons. Just there's been family biographies written about him. Obviously, as a person of faith, I can identify with that. But he was um, a very good husband. His kids loved him. He treated his employees very well. You know, they wrote many things after he died. I mean, every area of life, he did well. Mm. So I now look at him not so much, oh, let me be him, but more there are lessons that I can learn from him and how he led his life. Yeah, so you still could be true to yeah. to him, to your ancestor. But not so necessarily in the same field. Uh, yes. Uh, but that sense of just not um, sacrificing your family for some cause or some business, the keeping life in balance, yes, it's fine to be successful, but treating people well uh, around you as you're doing that, all of those things are important. 
and I, I, you must be must continually draw on this insight and this experience mm-hmm. in your own work as an advisor, mm-hmm. a leadership advisor today, yeah. right? Absolutely. So obviously you can't inherit a vision, but the other aspect is you, you've got to be self-aware. You've got to understand how you're wired uh, because any vision that we may, may feel drawn to, you've got to be able to decide or determine well, what's my role in that? If I have no skills or aptitude to make that vision happen, Mm -hmm. then what am I doing? Mm. You think of most people who've been successful, I think of somebody from the corporate arena, Walt Disney, he was an animator at heart. So over time, he didn't do as much animating, Mm -hmm. but they knew that Walt got animation, Mm -hmm. that he could dialogue with them. They they felt like, hey, he's one of us. Uh, So you've got to have some inherent wiring or aptitude um, for that vision. And the vision to me has got to be something that really ties in some ways to your core beliefs or values. Uh, it's If you're just pursuing some vision, but you don't really believe in it, you're not passionate about it, it won't go anywhere. So it's it's got to be, you've got to feel like you're making a difference to accomplish a vision to me. It's, it sounds also maybe that you're you're talking about a theory of leadership which says mm-hmm. we are who we are right and we have to find the right path that is consistent with who we are as opposed to something else that might be that might say well we are who we are but we can grow we could change and we could take on um we, we can push ourselves out of our comfort zone and all kinds of words like that what, what's your take on that yeah, that's an interesting question. I think we can always learn and grow. We need to be lifelong learners, um, uh, learn from different people, uh, different perspectives, absolutely. I think we're malleable in the sense of knowledge and information, but inherent wiring. Some people are artistic. Other people are more math types. Um, some people are driven, outgoing folks. Some people are more reflective, introverted. Those inherent wirings, they don't change from my perspective. They're, they're at birth. It doesn't mean to say that there are a lot of things you can do. Many successful corporate leaders are more introverted. So it doesn't necessarily mean you can't do different things, but um, you can't change your inherent wiring. So that's so on the one hand, we are who we are, but it doesn't mean to say that we can't learn from different perspectives and have our horizons uh, broadened. So I I see there's two different paradigms, if you will. So we want to know who we are, Mm self-awareness. Absolutely. And and we shouldn't deny who we are. We are who we are. But that is also not necessarily a constraint on what our capability is. No. In fact, I guess the more we know about who we are, we feel confident in our own skin, so to speak. And then we say, okay, that's true. Uh, but now I'm going to stretch. Now, I'm, now I want to do something different. Now I want to I grow. I want to learn. And you could do both at the same time. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. You want to make sure that whatever you do is using some of your, or at least compatible with your inherent wiring. There may be some fields in which um, you've got to give, I don't know, 10 speeches a day and, um, you know, just be a very extroverted environment. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a very disciplined person, so I can do a lot of things. I'm high perseverance, but I don't want to live my life in which most of the time I'm operating outside of my normal comfort zone, as in my inherent wiring. That, to me, would not seem to be a wise choice. doesn't mean you can't do it. Mm-hmm. It may even be successful, but mm-hmm. at what cost? Yeah. You, know, you want to feel like 
there's some harmony with who you are. I don't really find that limiting. Um, it just may channel you in other directions, perhaps. Yeah, it does depend in part on how you um, how you perceive your, yourself, because mm-hmm. if if you are, you know, you, you have your wiring, use your your language, sure. you're wired the way we are. And 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 to and and if you accept that, you you could imagine that creating a ceiling around what you can do. Sure. And personally, I don't I don't like that idea. Well, and I, I think that's a. It's easy to think that I I don't look at it quite that way. I, to me, it opens up perhaps fields that you hadn't considered. It's so easy to want to be who we're not. Like I'm I'm not unathletic, but I'm not very competitive, and so therefore, you know, being a competitive golfer, tennis player, or whatever. Yeah, with with a lot of work, maybe I could make some progress, but it would take an enormous amount of work to mm-hmm. do that because there's a lot of inherent wiring that's kind of not there. I don't have mm-hmm. high level of athletic mm-hmm. ability. Mm-hmm. Moderate, low to moderate, but not high. Mm-hmm. So I think part of life is realizing there are constraints in life. There mm-hmm. are things that we're not going to do well, no matter what, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Because there are many things that will do well. So let's not focus mm-hmm. on what we can't do. Let's focus on the many things that we could do and all the many opportunities. So, in fact, there are a huge number of things we can do yeah. given our wiring. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got introverted people that are university professors, that are corporate leaders. What could be more different? Mm-hmm. Very different, but yet they're the same wiring. So, yeah, I don't see it really as constraining. I think it's more as freeing. It's freeing. <laughs> Which is what it's been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and these are some of the themes that you write about in your yeah. um, in your book, Crucible Leadership. Yeah, I mean the the core of it, the spine of the book, is my story, in which I'm pretty unsparing about myself and as you have been in our conversation today. Well, and and you know, to me, I, I don't do it just because because I want to help other people be honest and vulnerable with themselves. I mean, that's really the that's really the point. Self awareness. Um, is a huge theme, trying to understand your, um, you know, inherent wiring, uh, what vision do you feel like you want to give your life to? And a concept I talk a lot about is leading a life of significance. To me, life is not about leading a life of success per se, but a life of significance where you're fulfilling some higher purpose as you define it. Helping other people doesn't mean you can't be successful, but you know, as often people talk about what do you want on your tombstone, how many zeros you had, maybe you had a, a wonderful family, you contributed to some cause you thought was worthwhile. I mean, those yeah. are the things I think most of us would want on there. Yeah, know? that's, uh, as people get closer to retirement, they particularly think about this. I, I um, not that long ago, I, um, I, um, I moderated a panel of um people that were about to retire, just recent re, uh, recently retired, they were very, very successful, CEO of a big company and uh, successful attorney, et cetera, uh, actually a successful uh, congressman who just uh, retired. So three different walks of life, huge careers, and they were talking about what that next stage is. And one of those three people said some, something quite similar to what you just said, which is, you know, what is that epitaph on your, on your tombstone? What's it going to say? And this is someone who... Um, after become after retiring as a CEO, pretty young actually, uh, for the last eighteen years has been a t- teaches math in the Bronx uh, to to kids in lower income uh, lower income school. That's uh, that's amazing, and see, to me, significance and contribution 
It's not about the size of it, whether it's leading some big corporation or nonprofit. To me, teaching math at a school in the Bronx is every bit as significant and a contribution to humanity as, as anything else. And he says it's the you know? most exciting thing he's ever done. Right. And, you know, my hope is that younger people, um, before they become successful, would think about this. I mean, it's not wrong to think about it in, the, in your 50s and 60s, but how about thinking about legacy and significance and purpose and contributing to society at a younger age? Mm, that's, you know? uh, that's interesting. I, I was going to ask this group because they were going full steam ahead in their 20s, 30s, 40s to establish right. their success. And now right. in 50s and 60s, they have the quote-unquote luxury of being able to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, I mean, some people talk about the first half of your life as you build success and the second half is significance. And to me, I see that as a false choice, false narrative. I think you can think about how you treat people. Uh, do you believe in the organization, the corporation that you're working for? I mean, we have more choice today than maybe we've ever had. You know, think about who you want to work with, who you want to work for. Uh, are they going in a direction that you believe in? How does this uh, take you on a path to fulfill your own sense of legacy and significance? I think we should ask those questions at an early age, not later on. I think uh, I think about my students, MBA students, average mm-hmm. age is 27, 28. I feel like right. they have gone more in that direction. You know, when you ask students or it comes up in class, how many people are already on nonprofit mm-hmm. boards mm-hmm. at the age of 28? I, I'll get a quarter to a third of the hands go up, which is really kind of amazing. It is. That's that's very that's very encouraging. Yeah, yeah, and not waiting until later. Uh, but on the other hand, I also see. You know, I think about myself when I was younger. I mean, I worked day and night to try to accomplish what I needed to accomplish, what I wanted to. Um, and uh, you know, you try to be a good person along the and, way. And, and that's not wrong to be driven and want to accomplish things. I mean, that is not wrong at all. I think it's great to strive for goals and and all that. It's just more thinking about, as I'm doing this, why am I doing this? What's the mm-hmm. purpose? Yes. It doesn't mean the direction will be different, but sometimes it's how you treat people and how you behave along the journey uh, that's important. And another theme that um, I know you, you talk about in your writing, um, humility, which is humility, self-awareness, it's, it's probably related. Um, that's, that's a huge a huge lesson of learning. Uh, again, I know you write a lot about this, but we don't have all the answers. And just wanting to learn from others around, being curious. It's hard to be a lifelong learner if you're not humble. If you're arrogant, you feel like, well, I, I know everything I need to learn. Why do we need to learn from other people? Hmm. I have all the answers, right? Yeah. So that's another... Great is a great point. You know, openness, yeah. willingness to learn is in some ways the secret sauce to success. It is. I mean, I've always, I like to think uh, I've made many mistakes, but humility is probably one of my highest values and, and always has been just trying to learn from others and not think of yourself as greater than you are. I mean, you know, yes, I have a good academic background, Oxford, Harvard Business School, but it doesn't make me better than other people. It just, I've been very privileged in a lot of ways. But um, appreciate what you've accomplished, appreciate what you've learned, but don't feel like you can't learn from others who maybe have different background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A uh, couple, uh, couple of last uh, questions for you, Warwick. Um, 
Uh, I like to ask this question about kind of going in the past, and we've, in some ways, mm -hmm. we've talked about it, but I'm going to mm -hmm. go even earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually a question where it's something I imagine you could kind of sit down next to yourself at the mm -hmm. age of 20, uh, and you just kind of, at the age of 20, you were, uh, you would have been at Oxford, I guess? Yes, exactly. Okay, so you're sitting in the library at Oxford, <laughs> it's a beautiful library, no doubt, with wood paneling. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and you somehow magically transport yourself back and you're sitting next to the 20-year-old Warwick. What, what piece of advice would you have given him, given all you know today? I would probably ask myself a series of questions because I often feel like the best way to give advice mm -hmm. is to ask questions and have the person think. Hmm. Uh, they'll listen more that way. Uh, so I would have asked, I know you love your dad and you love your parents, but is this your vision or is this your parents' vision? Uh, do you feel like you really do have the inherent wiring to take on this big leadership position? And if it wasn't this, what else might you think of? I mean, there's a number of questions I could ask. The big question in my mind is, would I have listened? Hmm. And I have to say, just to be honest, I'm a little skeptical because I can be pretty stubborn, especially back then probably still so in some ways. And I was so wedded to the cause and my dad and the founder and legacy. Gosh, it would have been hard for me yeah. to listen. You know, sometimes you, you, you want to go back in a time capsule and save yourself from those <laughs> mistakes. And it's just, it's not easy to do. I mean, I could have shaken myself and said, come on, listen. But sometimes the only way to learn these lessons is suffer through the mistakes. Yeah, which as yeah. a parent, we don't, I mean, it depends what the mistake is. It's a littler mistake, yeah. not a life-changing, <laughs> damaging. It's actually wise to let the kid learn. Uh, but when it's something really you, bad, you we, just, we all want him. our kids to not, you know, uh, certainly suffer the same mistakes as we did. But, yeah, I mean, I have a number of questions I would have asked myself. I just, I was so wedded to Judy and that whole thing and my dad. And it would have been really tough for me to listen. So I'm... I have to say I'm a little skeptical as to anything yeah. I could have said that would have worked. But I, I would have liked to try because I don't know that I really had people asking me those questions. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an unknowable. It was no, being reinforced. What you had in you was being reinforced by everything around you. Well, I even had, even the spiritual can work against you. I even had people say to me at the time, if we'd been praying that God would raise somebody up at the heart of the media for decades, you're an answer to prayer. Well... That's a bit of a heavy spiritual thing. Oh, boy. You got the spiritual yeah. monkey wrench thrown at you. I mean, it's – or others in my family have said, you know, you have the promise of being, you know, one of the greatest in your family since the founder. Because, you know, I worked hard and was mm. diligent. So all of these things were thrown at you that she answered a prayer, could be one of the greatest since the founder. I mean, it's, it's hard to withstand all that stuff, even yeah. if you think of yourself as humble – that's a tough thing to withstand. You almost have to be superhuman to yeah. uh, to deal with that um, and go go a different go a different direction. Um, boy, that is um, you've had quite a uh, quite a journey, and I think it's great to uh, kind of share some of your leadership thoughts as well as as an advisor, as a, as an author as well, um, and um, and really the um, 
you know, the, the openness and the honesty that you've shared and that you share in your book and your other work as well, uh, I think is really useful. I can think of, I mean, this is a podcast I'm going to want, I'm going to ask my students to, uh, to listen to because the mm-hmm. themes we've talked about around self-awareness, around knowing who you are, about stretching yourself at the same time as understanding who you are as a person, about learning from, learning from mistakes, um, about humility, that's a curriculum right right there. So uh, Warwick, Warwick Fairfax, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you, Sid. I uh, really appreciate you having me.